Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is David Prima. He is the founder and chief sales scientist of Cerebral Selling. Now, David has written a book called You Sell the Way You Buy, and today we're going to talk about the science of selling, and we're also going to be exploring how you can help your customers find their hidden enemies. So, David, would you mind us giving us maybe 60 to 90 seconds on your background, please? Yeah, for sure. Well, look, everyone gets into So thank you, first of all, Marcus, for having yes. me here. Everyone gets into sales by accident, especially in the modern day. No one gets into sales on purpose because we don't teach it in schools, right? And so everyone has their own story. And my story was similar. I got into sales at the turn of the dot-com booms so around 1999, 2000. I was a research scientist. I was doing graduate work in engineering, building computer models, and uh, ended up joining a startup because that's what you know. That's what all the cool kids did at the time. Uh, ended up absolutely falling in love with sales. I actually started my career as a sales engineer, so doing you know demos, custom coding, customer presentations, and so on. Absolutely fell in love. But I realized you know over the course of the next twenty years that you know people love to buy things, but they just they just hate talking to salespeople. But this passion for really picking apart the world of sales caught me. I spent the next 20 years across uh, four high-growth technology B2B startups. Three of them ended up being acquired. One, which I helped start in 2008, was acquired by Salesforce. So it came over with the ship, spent five awesome years at Salesforce, seeing how the sales machines were built operationally and culturally at scale. But I realized at the end of the day, this is the best profession in the world. I love it, but it doesn't make you popular at parties or family reunions to tell people you're in sales. And so my mission is to teach people how to do it the right way using foundations of science and empathy. Okay, so two things I want to pick up on with what David's just said. Gartner released a report in October 2020, so in the last month, says 33% of buyers want a seller-free buying experience. That is an indictment on our profession. And I want to build on something else that David said, which is certainly I'm on a mission and I know that he is as well. Sales is a force for good. It is nothing to be ashamed of if done well. And there is a big if there because what passes for average in sales, let's be honest, is pretty shit. So David, (laughs) um, let's start with a million dollar question. Why do buyers really buy? So why do buyers buy? Like I believe it's, it's one word, if I can summarize in one word, feelings. We buy from everything we buy, from B2B technology to what we ordered for lunch, to what we, you know, what we desire at the end of a long day, to what we buy on Amazon, whatever it is, it all comes down to feelings. And a lot of those feelings are feelings that are subconscious, that are things that we're not even aware of. But like that's how people buy feelings first and foremost, 100%. So let's kick off with the next million dollar question, which is why is it so few humans understand other humans? (laughs) Well, you know, our minds play tricks on us. You know, we have all of these, you know, people refer to as cognitive biases that quite simply let us function, right? Like, for example, you may not listening to, I'm not pointing a finger at you, Marcus, but you listening to this conversation may not give money to starving children in third world countries. It's not that you're a bad person. It's just that, you know, that's something that's happening over there where you're not, right? Or like, for example, I remember at the beginning of the, the pandemic when we're, when we're filming this, you know, the, the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, oh, the, the, this COVID thing, this is something that's happening like over there. Like it's not happening here yet where we are. And so we put all of these kind of mental blockers in place so that we can function. The primary purpose of our brain is to keep us safe 
while using as few calories as possible. So all sorts of things, even from stereotypes to like quick decisions and so on, are meant to just help us function. And that happens at a subconscious level. It's just like a pathway that's been worn down for years and years and years from someone walking on it. And, and it just helps, again, keep us safe and make decisions quickly and, and, and protect us, both you know physically and emotionally. So that's why most of us are not in tune with the way we make decisions, right? And so, you know, a simple... A simple test I often give people is they say, like, let's say, for example, I asked you, you're listening to this, I want you to write down everything that you ate for lunch in the last month. And then I'm going to take that list and I'm going to give that list to your doctor. And I'm going to ask your doctor, what percentage of the time did this person, this is not an indictment on Marcus or anything, what percentage of the time did this person order, eat, you know, make the best thing for them for lunch? Best, I say, objectively speaking, calorically, food groups, portion size, that whole thing. What percentage time is that? And I'm not, I don't know, so Marcus saying zero. So uh, well, I'm just conscious that clearly I've been uh, saving calories uh, <laughs> and feeling very safe. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what? Look, some people, it doesn't, like, whether your answer is zero or five or 10 or 90, okay? It means that some percentage of the time you are eating things that are not the best thing for you. So does that mean that all of those, let's say, so does that mean that 100% of the time, Marcus, does that mean that 100% of the time you are angry with yourself for everything that you eat? Like you're like, I can't believe I fell into this trap again. I ate the wrong thing, right? I'm, I'm probably willing to admit that you're, you're happy with, you know, not yeah, I'm very happy. <laughs> you're very happy. You know, we don't on a conscious level say, oh yeah, I screwed up again. I had an extra beer or I had that pizza at the end of a long day because we always do things that align with what we feel. And then our brain tells us, no, like it's, we should have had that thing because, you know, look, we had a tough morning. We deserve this, right? And we see, we tell ourselves all of these little stories that help us function and that, you know, help us be consistent with our mental image of ourselves. But objectively speaking, if you were, you know, your doctor or Deloitte and you were brought in to audit the decisions that people make, objectively speaking, you would find that most people make decisions that are not in their best interest, not in their objective best interest most of the time but they're almost 100% aligned with their emotional best interests. Well, again, I think very often people are not, so often they're not aware of where they are emotionally anyway. And given how many decisions we make in a day, I think the research suggests 35,000 decisions a day. All of those virtually are unconscious. And so I think you know, in NLP, they talk about people being in trance most of the time, the challenge is to get them out of it long enough so that they can make a conscious, rational decision. So looking at the work that you've done over the years, what are the blind spots that you see? Let's start with managers. Uh, What are the blind spots that you see sales managers have that actually get in the way of an effective relationship between seller and buyer? I mean, look, you know, one of the biggest challenges that sales managers have is just, you know, the interaction they have with their team members. So things like coaching, motivating, driving accountability. There's like sales memes all over the place you see on the internet where the sales manager is kind of sidling up to the, the rep and say, hey, so Marcus, what do you got cooking today? You know, like, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> and, and, that, and so we basically almost, and it's kind of funny, but it's almost we condition our sales reps to, you know, it's all about the revenue and the month end. And like, there's never been a better time to buy and hustle, hustle, hustle. And it was funny because I had this epiphany 
when I was at Salesforce, and I, and I love Salesforce, by the way, and I had a great experience there, an amazing sales culture. It's the end of the month, end of the quarter. We're all out there telling our teams, you know, hustle, hustle, hustle. Like, you know, we're, we're trying to get them all excited. And yet, you know, we're going back to our desks, at least I was, and I was being inundated with phone calls, people trying to prospect into me because I'm a VP at Salesforce. Why not sell me something? I should be a target, right? And all of the things that I was telling my, my team to do were not working on me, right? I was like the, you know, the, 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 the iron gate here. And so this idea of, you know, as a leader, instead of just trying to motivate our reps to sell more, 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 really trying to coach them to be more empathetic, to use tactics that are rooted in, uh, you know, when reason and science. Oftentimes, and I'd say like one of the biggest things as a sales manager, when you're, when you're kind of in the thick of that, you know, year end, month end, whatever it is, you tend to fall back on these tactics that your manager used with you or advocated that you do. And these things are not necessarily unethical. They're not categorically ineffective, but you don't know why you're telling people to do this. You don't know at a foundational level why that tactic works or it doesn't. You're not really thinking about it from the customer's perspective and how that tactic is going to influence them to make a purchase. So I'd say like that's the biggest rut we fall into. The end of the month, end of quarter, you know, or just you know, regular sales stuff, we push our reps to do things that wouldn't work on us. And we don't stop to think about the delicate balance of art and science that gives rise to the outcome of those tactics we use because it was just something that our manager told us. So we need to kind of break the cycle a little bit as leaders and kind of take a step back, really question the tactics we're using, why they work, why they don't, and really coach our team members to do better. Okay, so next step, what are the blind spots that salespeople bring to their customers? You know, I'd say that the, there's, a, there's a few, but I'd say like one of the, the biggest ones is the, just the empathetic blind spot. It's funny. It's almost like when we're in sales, it's, it's almost like we're pulling over, uh, you know, we're the police and we're pulling over someone on the side of the road and we're flashing our badge and we're saying, excuse me, sir, don't, I'm going to treat you like a jerk here for the next 30 minutes or so, but don't worry. <laughs> I, I'm in sales. I'm allowed to do this. Okay. You're not allowed to do that. Because all that stuff would never work on you if you found yourself on the buying side. So that's, you know, one of the pitfalls. We think that we're allowed to act differently than we do in normal everyday life, number one. Number two, you know, as far as the application of the tactics and kind of dovetailing off number one, we often execute tactics in a very robotic, not natural sounding way. And I'd say like, I don't want to loop marketing people in here unnecessarily, but marketing people are guilty of this as well, where we go out and we use catchphrases and slogans and tactics in a very kind of deliberate, very um, telegraphed way in ways that human beings would never interact and talk to each other outside of that relationship. So really, you know, approaching, you know, one of the, so that's number two, just approaching the interaction from the standpoint of like just a very human level. The last thing I'll drop on you is just, you know, it's funny how much of it comes down to, to tone, objection handling, messaging, pitching, it all comes down to like whether or not you feel like I sound like a, can I say asshole on your show? Is that, that'll yeah, yeah. allow? Okay, good. You, you can so, say anything. <laughs> anything, okay, good. Well, I'll uh, if they don't like it, they can tune out. I really okay. don't care. Well, like here, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, let's say, you know, and this is, comes down to, I'll give you a couple examples, tone. So there's a thing that I talk about in my book and I talk about in my practice. I call it experience asymmetry. And this is when a younger, less experienced salesperson is calling on a more senior level decision maker whose yeah. job they've never done. This yeah. is almost, most of sales is that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And what happens is, Me, if you're a younger, yeah. 
less experience. Like, think about this. When my kids, you have kids, Marcus? Yeah, yeah, three. Okay, me too. So when my kids come to me and they're about to hit me up for something, when your kids come to you and they're about to hit you up for something, can you tell, like, immediately? Just by their body language and their gait. But that's right. <laughs> you don't even have to open their mouths. And then the, t- the, the way they start the sentence with, uh, daddy. That's and right. The pitch is higher. That's right. The pitch. Yeah. And you can tell. And they, you know, they can't disguise that because they're young and innocent. But like, that's actually what happens, right? Where your tone of voice changes. And it was funny, you know, back at Salesforce, I would hear oftentimes my young reps be on the phone with customers and they would have all of this, these calls and emails and then no pipeline. And I would say, what's going on? Do you not know who to call? Do you not, you're not calling at the right time? You don't have white space in your accounts? And we'd be like, no, 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 we have all these things. And I say, well, you know what? I just need to listen to your calls now and kind of hear what's going on. And I would kind of almost close my eyes and I, I would say, you know what? Let me just let me just pretend I don't really care what the words are. I'm just gonna close my eyes and just be drifted away, be in the words, listening for the tone. And I would say, listening to you speak to the customer, I would say, it sounds to me like you're bothering the customer. It sounds to me like you're afraid that you're not adding enough value. The same way your kids, when they come to you and they're about to hit you up for something, you're just like, and they're like, dad. And you're like, the answer is no, whatever the question is, right? Because you become defensive. <laughs> How and that's do you the- know? You haven't asked you the question. That's right. <laughs> but that's the way our customers feel. They can feel the pitch coming a mile away. And, and the, the pitfall here is that sales reps often don't stop to inspect their emotional state, their tone, even when they're, for example, handling objections. Like you, there's a way to handle an objection where you sound like kind and empathetic and one where you sound like an asshole, right? And, and, the, and you may not even realize these things, but your customers do, right? And so that's a huge pitfall that sellers fall into. Okay. You're trying to grab the customer's attention or the prospect's attention. Now, I'm sure yeah, we, we can have a meaningful conversation about this, but what I see is the sacrifice of effectiveness for efficiency. And I see all this MarTech and these sales technologies, and they are just creating dehumanized noise. I posted that I was recruiting And I had a guy uh, tell me that he had a database of 200,000 people and he was pounding it out. And uh, his his value proposition was that even if only 1% respond, and I'm thinking, well, there's 99% who would never do business with our brand because you pissed them off. Then they blast this stuff out and they get no reaction. You know, you see remarketing. You just bought... Uh, that Mercedes. And for the next two months, you get hassled about buying another one. I mean, what on God's earth is all that shit about? (laughs) I had that with the cruise line. I took a cruise with my family. And then I was getting almost daily emails from the crew. Like a cruise is not a daily email marketing activity. And yet, for whatever reason, I couldn't unsubscribe because I was just, I had this professional curiosity about what are they going to say from day to day that's going to somehow entice me to come back to your point? Yeah. The day after I've just come off this. I just trip. came back. I could yeah. go once a year. You don't have to market to me every single day. Yeah. I'm packing up my job and all I'm going to do is cruises. <laughs> but no, you're quite right. You know, it not only does it turn people off, but I also become, I now I become a detractor of your brand, not just for me, but someone, someone asks me about your company. I'm like, oh, like that's the company. And I'll tell you, I ran, I run a sales leadership meetup in the group 
I won't name the names of uh, you know particular you know companies, but a lot of sales leaders are interested in sales technology. So they'll say, "Hey, look, I'm looking at this technology. I'm I'm checking out vendor A, vendor B. What what's all your experience been?" And people will say, "Oh yeah, I love I love vendor A, I love vendor A." Some will say, "Well, you know what, vendor B has good technology, but you know, oh my gosh, I've been getting hounded by this sales rep, and I just I can't take it anymore." And the other the other manager would say, "Is it Marcus?" And they would say, yes, it's Marcus. And then the other sales manager says, oh my gosh, Marcus has been calling me too. He's horrible. Now I'm just, I'm not picking on you. But like you end up developing right. a <laughs> negative, you get a negative association to the brand that transcends the solution, the product, right? If you, like, it's the same thing. I just recently bought a car and I went to the dealership to, to test drive the car and they didn't have the exact model and specification they wanted. So I had to go to another dealership where they had it. And I walk into that other dealership. It's the same. It's the same brand, but the you know the washrooms are dirty. There's like loud music playing, and you know back to like the experience as the product. I was turned off by doing business with that dealership. Would never recommend anyone go there because of just these like small things that are completely unrelated to the actual product itself. So, you mentioned the ninety nine out of hundred. It not only turns you off from the seller, but the brand as well. Dan Kennedy said something, which he said 25 years ago. It's even truer today, which is the price of free marketing is all the people who will never do business with your company. And that's what—that's the price that you pay for spamming. My inbox in uh, LinkedIn is inundated with crap spam. They connect. And almost without exception, I know once I've connected, which ones are going to hit me up? Um, you know, foreign exchange, crypto, lead generation, marketing automation, recruiters. And you just think, why are you doing this? I accept the connections because I, I am a bit of a whore when it comes to <laughs> uh, you know, building my network. But I, I actually want to help these people. And I, so I can contact them and I say, yeah, does this work? And some of them take it well. You know, maybe 5% take it well. And those are the ones that it's worth it for. Now, but the other 95, they either ignore it or they continue their marketing automation. And I had a guy uh, today uh, who said, really loved your profile, would love to uh, chat to you about you know, the type of customers that you sell to, B2B or B2C. Now, you only have to look at my profile. I've never sold a thing to another member of the public in my life. Everything I've ever done is B2B. It's written all over it. It even says business to business in there. And it just flabbergasts me that they think that this stuff will work. So you sell the way you buy, then presumably that involves the million-dollar question, which is if you were on the receiving end of any of your communication, how would you respond? Now, why is that question not more frequently asked of salespeople of themselves? Well, it's a good question. You know, I, this is something actually I start my book with this very concept. Like, why are there so many bad salespeople out there? And in fact, you know, I believe that bad salespeople, as much as you'd like to demonize and vilify them, they're not bad people. They're nice people. They're good people. They have people that love them, families, they play sports, they, you know, they have friends, just like everyone else. But they go out there and they execute these tactics that would never work on them if they found themselves on the buying side. And I ask myself, well, why, why is that? Like, why does that happen? And the, the, the nearest explanation I often come back to, I don't know, I, I, so I'm 45 years old. So I grew up, I was born in 1975, whippersnapper. whippersnapper. You know, one of the, the movies that I loved growing up 
1984 was uh, the Karate Kid, and I know the Karate Kid has been popularized again now with, you know, with the with the the series and so on, the Cobra Kai. And I think back to the Karate Kid, and I ask myself, actually, the the, the first chapter of my book I uh, called the Cobra Kai paradox. And what is it all about? It's you know, why do you have these kids that just turn out to be jerks and assholes and bullies? They're actually not bad kids. And you see this actually in the new series. They, they're not bad kids. They were turned that way because they chose the wrong sensei. They chose the wrong instructor, right? And especially if you're in sales, if you end up working for someone who propagates these wrong negative behaviors you know, with you, you don't know any different. The person's telling you, go email Marcus to ask him about these B2B, B2C. Like do that with like 100,000 people and see what comes back. Let's just play the numbers game. Right? And we don't care that there's a body trail of customers who hate us at the end of the day. And people are like, okay, well, let's do that. So they're just not, they're not stopping to think. They're not conscious of the, this question that you asked. It's like, well, why, why would you do this if it would never work on you? And they would say, well, you know, my manager told me like this stuff works and I should do it. And there probably is a certain amount of data that says, I mean, like, for example, I don't know about you. I get telemarketer calls all the time. And people actually call me telemarketer in like, Different languages, languages I don't speak. And I say hello, and it's like just, you know, a recording in some language I don't speak. And I say to myself, why did they why did they do that? They're totally wasting money calling me. If this is like a robocall, I'm sure they're still paying for it. Why are they doing this? And it must be because there's some return on it. You know, there must be some people that fall for this stuff. So, you know, that's really why, in my view, why people continue to propagate these behaviors. Just someone told them to do it. They didn't know any better. They didn't stop to think and ask. But you're absolutely right. It's actually quite astonishing the number of outreaches that you and I both get where we're just almost sitting there scratching our heads saying, does this person even know? Like with two seconds of research, they could have saved themselves the trouble of reaching out to me or made it just a little bit more personalized. Show me that you put in a little bit of effort. And I do the same thing that you do where I actually get back to these people and I say, hey, you know what? I'm not interested in your product, but... If you keep doing this, you're not only going to be unsuccessful, but you're going to ruin sales for everyone. You're going to ruin it for me, ruin it for Marcus, ruin it for everyone. Please, God, stop doing this. And I usually send like an article. A lot of some of the articles I've written, I wrote because of this, and I send them the relevant article. But like, you know, you, you got to get to these people. Have you come across a company called Authentics? I have not. The CEO is a lady called Amy Brown, and their website is Be Authentics with a CX at the end.com. And they work in the US healthcare call center sector. And they monitor something like 10 million conversations a year. And these are raw, unfiltered conversations between seller and buyer. And that customer conversational analytics is just gold because it's the raw, unfiltered, unbiased expression of the customer's experience and emotion. And we all need to take a lesson out of uh, Amy's book. The way she works with her clients is she does an audio montage, five minutes of conversation with customers who love them and who are pissed off. So often you have the CEO, the CMO, the CFO, just head in hands thinking, shit, we really do that? That's what people think of us. And we, we should pay more attention to this. I fundamentally believe that the best salespeople are not in new business. That's where people get thrown to cut their teeth. 
And the really phenomenal salespeople that I've met and interviewed are ones who move into really complex enterprise sales. And yes, they win new business. But once they're in, then they infect the entire ecosystem. They maximize the sale to that particular customer. Then they pivot and they go 10, 15 degrees either way. And they get into the alumni network. They get into the supply chain, partners, joint venture partners, customers, customer. And I interviewed, I think, probably the best salesperson I've ever interviewed. Uh, Her name is Caroline Pino, and she works for a company called Splunk. And if you're a headhunter, there ain't no way you're going to move her. Let me explain why. She got the job tail end of 2019, was on her first month's induction, felt ill, went to the hospital, got diagnosed with bowel cancer. And so she's been on chemo all of this year. In October, she was tracking at 300% of actual quota build. And she's, hasn't, she's not stopping. She's probably going to come in about 330, 350% percent of quota. Now, bear in mind, she was doing this on two hours work a day on average, because that's about her energy level. And what she does is breathtaking. She decided which four customers she was going to work with. And her opener right at the outset is, I am here to work out how I can help you. I want to understand what you are trying to achieve. And I will bend over backwards in order to make sure that I help you achieve your outcome. And she became their partner. And Throughout this year, she has been working just with those four accounts, and she has developed phenomenal relationships. But the other thing she has to demonstrate David's point about empathy is her ability, because of her high EQ, genuine curiosity, and authenticity, is she is really interested in the human beings that she works with within Splunk and is interested in them as people not just for their uh, capability to help her. And net result of that is she gets massive discretionary effort and uh, no pushback uh, when she needs stuff and when she needs people to do things for her for which they will not be directly rewarded. Now, that's really where most of us would want to end up. Now, yeah, it's great being fantastic at new business. I've always been good at that. But what I've realized is just how much extra effort and work that I've had to Uh, put in by concentrating on that. And I think culturally, it's because leaders think that direct sales and new business are the golden child. So that's where the emphasis is. But I look at the best channel managers and channel chiefs. Those guys generate 10 times a direct salesperson's revenue. And one partner is worth 50 customers. But you have no direct control. The only thing you have there is uh, your currency, our influence, and trust. And trust takes a long time to earn. It takes seconds to destroy. And so um, my my pal, Zach Selch, um, he's been selling through partners for the last 30 years in 135 countries, over 1,000 partnerships he's set up. And his motto is, the only way out of his network is in a box. Now, if you have that mentality, that philosophy, those values in yourselves, whether it's direct or indirect, and you actually care about other people's success, instead of hitting your shitty quota for this month, you will project out precisely what people need in order to buy from you, and it will get reflected back 
because they will take your call. They will see you as someone of value. And that's, I think, the critical point here. Because most people in sales deliver no value on virtually every touch. Fair? Absolutely fair. Yeah. And look, I, I think it's incumbent upon salespeople to figure out, okay, I'm going to talk to Marcus today. What is the valuable thing that he's going to leave with? You know, regardless, even, you know, from a prospecting perspective, you know, one of the things I'm a big fan of is to say, okay, if this customer gets, you know, I want to make sure this customer gets value from our interaction, even if they choose not to do business with me. Like it shouldn't just be like, hey, do you want to like do something you want to talk about? Like how we can help you do A, B, and C. There needs to be something of tangible value that they're going to leave with regardless because you need to overcome that potential energy of them not wanting to talk to you in the first place. But I also think it's, it can sometimes be tricky that the, you know, the, the, you know, the friend that you mentioned, I think is a great story. It would be great if I had a business where I could just make 300% of my quota working with four customers. But of course there's other, you know, types of selling where you need to be a little bit more transactional, but that doesn't mean that you need to be a jerk, that you can't add value, that you can't form those relationships. I want to impress that upon people who are, might be listening to this and thinking, well, that's great if I have a small cohort of customers that I can, I can really get in deep and partner with. You can create that same experience, even with like a high volume of, of customer interactions, for sure. And that was really my point. So thank you for picking up on it. It's uh, spending time with fewer prospects and fewer customers, but make the, each, con- each contact meaningful to them. And uh, Carl von Clausewitz is one of my heroes. Uh, He wrote a book called On War. And when he was recruiting Prussian officers, he would recruit them for intelligence and laziness. Minimum effort, minimum loss of life. And I think you should recruit salespeople for the same thing. I'm not interested in people who just think more is better. More is definitely not better. If you're doing more crap, all you're going to get is more crap output. You've got to do better. And I think the best salespeople are highly reflective. They are curious. They want to learn. They're vulnerable enough to seek out help. I think of people like Anthony Anarino, uh, Victor Antonio. Both of those guys had an epiphany when a customer took them to the woodshed for a beating. And then they, they gave them a lesson in how not to do it and then spent time with them and said, look, this is what matters to me. And I I think too few salespeople ask their customers, what am I doing wrong? How can I get better? How can I serve you better? Absolutely. Well, and it also takes time, like to build up your arsenal of helpful resources. And, you know, and I always tell reps, I said, you know, think about the power of reciprocity, you know, the act of a small gift. You know, I do enjoy it. There's a book I like, it's called uh, Getting More by Stuart Diamond, who's a professor at the Wharton School of Business. And he teaches, you know, negotiation there and at Harvard. And he says, you know, we all are familiar with the power of getting a single flower for a loved one or bringing a small, like little gift back from vacation for some, you know, for a friend that you got, even if it's at the, you know, for, I go to, I went to London, I come back with my kid, you know, to my kids with like a, like a pen that says London on it and it has like a phone booth. Like, oh my gosh, this is the best gift ever. Cause it's not the magnitude of the gift. It's the, just the thought and effort you put into it. And it's amazing how low the bar is. You know, so even as a seller, you know, if you can point, you know, well, here's a, just a simple exercise I tell people to do. I say, hey, you know what? If you're going to reach out to a prospect, here's what you do. Go to Harvard Business. Do a, like a, a search on Harvard Business for an article, recent article that's related to their industry or something that would be valuable to them, something that they don't know. And then, and just send it to them. Say, hey, look, you know, Marcus, I'd love to have a chat about, you know, A, B, and C if I can help. And by the way, like, I actually found this article I thought you might enjoy. It's like, it's the, it's the flower. It's like, I'm thinking of you. 
right? And yeah, even it's a fuzzy if, file. Fuzzy file. And even if you know, <laughs> that's a great term. Even if that thing doesn't end up converting the customer, that's not the goal. The goal isn't converting the customer. The goal is to get the customer exactly what you said, to call you back, to answer the phone. I'll tell you, some of the, you got, you're holding a boomerang. I hope you're not going to throw it yeah, at the no, camera. No, no, no. This, this was from Silka Ahrens, one of my clients. She went on a trip to Australia and she brought this back to me. And it was <laughs> a huge amount to me. I have it next to me where I'm working in my conservatory, something that could have gone anywhere. Uh, but I actually intentionally kept it. It's meaningful. There, there you go. Yeah, like it's a small thing. And, you know, so the key Thank is for us. Thank you, Silka. Yeah, like thinking of like, what are these small things, these small little gifts we can give to our customers? Because they they can have a massive impact, you know? The, so anyways, these are the things that salespeople should be thinking of. How do I build just that affinity? You know, one of the biggest, I'll tell you, the biggest, highest ROI event that we ran in our segment at Salesforce. So, you know, that so I was acquired by Salesforce. I didn't apply to work there. So, you know, it was just kind of, oh, I'm a happy accident here. I'm at Salesforce. And I had been a Salesforce customer many times before. And I kind of said, look, you know, a lot of the events that we run here now, us, they're kind of thinly veiled product pitches. It's like, let's talk about the future of X, but really the punchline is here's a great product that can take you to the future of X. And so I said, well, let's, let's do something different. And so I was running small business sales for the Eastern US. And I said, you know what, why don't we do these events in various cities? Let's go to Washington, DC. Let's go to Boston and let's have a dinner. We'll invite 10, 15 customers to attend the dinners, the leaders. And the pretext of the dinner is we're going to be talking about, you know, tactics to help, you know, grow our business. And, and I was, again, well-suited because I had been a customer. I'd been acquired. And a lot of these small business customers found that interesting. So we invited them to this dinner and we said, we're not going to, we're not, there's going to be no product pitch. In fact, we would start these dinners saying we're not going to talk about products at all. What we're going to be talking about are just, you know, sharing insights into how we run each other's businesses and, and sharing. And I would actually buy a copy. One of my favorite books, I have a bunch on the shelf here, is called The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results. People, you know, there's some fanatics around this book. I love this book. And I would bring copies of this book for all the participants. I said, look, you're busy executives. Fun, focus and prioritization is a real big challenge. I know for all of us, this is a book I love. Let's talk That's about- one by Marcus Buckingham. No, this, this, the one thing is uh, Gary Keller. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so we would need to know I was thinking of, yeah. But so they love this little, and look, it didn't cost us a lot to buy the book. We didn't pitch our product once. And we actually framed the whole conversation about like, what's your one thing? Like, what's the one thing you feel holding your business back? We ran around the table and it was a quiet, you know, if anyone wants to steal this, go ahead. It was a quiet dinner, meaning... It wasn't like chit chat. It wasn't networking. It was like, let's all shut up and listen to Marcus, right? And then we would go around and people would offer advice to Marcus. And the customers found that that dinner was so valuable when we actually measured the amount of revenue and pipeline that was created as a result of the people that were at those dinners. It was the most highest ROI event we did in our entire segment, including like Dreamforce. Wow. And when you ask the reps and the reps who attended the dinner and we would have, it was me and a couple reps and then, you know, you know, 10, 15 customers, they would leave the dinner and they would be like, holy shit, that was amazing. Like the customers loved it. It didn't feel sleazy. It didn't feel like we were pitching them anything. And then- They were telling you what their problems were. They were telling us the problems. And the best part was they said, at the end of the month, end of the quarter, when we wanted the, the signature, we wanted the business, they took our call. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't, you know, oh, they, it was an automatic conversion and, you know, money was flying out of wallets, but it was, it was, they answered the phone when I called them. And that's the power 
of the gift. You know, the one small trinket makes like I now remember you as the company, as the person, as the organization who who added this little bit of value. And so I feel indebted to answer the phone when you call now. Well, this speaks to something else, which is really important, which is that you're paying attention to your customer. My friend uh, Ron Verpereis came up with this concept that attention is a currency. You mm-hmm. pay attention and you build an emotional credit bank. And the problem is that when you try and steal their attention, then you're going into massive overdraft. And that's where they block your calls and they don't take it at the end of the quarter. And it, it, it's a fabulous example of how you can really bring value. And I don't know if you've come across a product called Soundboard. It's 30 bucks a month, and it's a widget that fits onto uh, LinkedIn on Chrome. And you scroll through someone's profile, and then you click on the Soundboard menu, and up pops all the different keywords that relate to their profile and uh, their content. And then you can pull off articles that are directly relevant to those elements of their profile and their interests. Now, that's a great conversation starter, and it's incredibly powerful. $30 a month, and you can get the, you know, you can get the version without the trends and analytics for a tenner. I mean, why, why would you not be investing in that kind of stuff as a salesperson? Mm-hmm. It's madness not to. Yeah, just to have these more valuable conversations. It's um, because this is so small, like the small things, the relevance, even if someone reached out to you on LinkedIn and knew like a modicum of knowledge about what it is you do or a recent article or like, I really enjoyed your last podcast with David and I know you talked about, you would lean in and say, great, like what, what else would you like to talk about, right? It's just these small things make a huge difference. On the subject of research, if you want to speak to a C-level executive, Listen to what they've said when they've been videoed at conferences or they've been on a podcast or in their annual report and accounts or if they've been interviewed in Forbes. And you lean in and you say, David, I was reading the article in Forbes where you said that will grab people's attention. And the reality is that so few salespeople put in that extra discretionary effort. And it costs you next to nothing. And in fact, it saves you thousands of hours of prospecting time fruitlessly. And so you've got to start getting a bit savvier about how you approach your customer. I'm a huge fan of Mark Schaefer and his book, Marketing Rebellion. And the one line that really stood out for me is you must think as the customer, not about the customer. And if you cannot, get your mind into their shoes, into their skin, and understand what it's like to really be them, live their life, do their job. Um, You're at a massive disadvantage because then all you are is a pill pusher. No one wants to pay a lot of money for an aspirin. And the conversation inevitably descends into price. You've got people who try to be the gurus, the, the subject matter experts. But after a while, they all kind of sound the same. Everyone has the secret to never having to cold call again. And they all sound the same. And then they become a commodity and they all talk about, you know, end up in a conversation about price. Then you've got the hero level. This is a model from Simon Bowen. And the hero level, people come to because they want to be defended because of your strength. Now, the next level up, there is a massive leap. And this is the sage seller. 
And people come to the sage seller for their wisdom. And they're hoping maybe some of it will rub off and make them smarter. But when you can make that transition by being somebody who has partnered with their customers and you are the first port of call when they have a problem, and the question goes through their mind, who can I ask? And your name is the first one, the first one that comes off their lips and they start dialing your number straight away. That is really where we should be aiming for uh, in terms of selling. Yeah, it's fine. If you want to work really hard and live hand to mouth and get paid four months in eight commission, then by all means, play the numbers game. But the numbers game is dead and buried. And it has been for a while. All the numbers game means that you're going to piss off more people and alienate uh, more potential customers. Work a lot smarter and really focus on empathy, understanding, being buyer-centered, Think um, as the user of your product or your service. And you know, like David said right at the beginning, the benefit, the, the real payoff is the experience they have buying from you. David Sanders said, you're differentiating how you sell, not what you sell. And I've sold against, uh, when I was in the training business, I've sold against other trainers. And on average, I was 12 to 56 times more expensive than my competitors with a 96% close rate. Now, that was, that was my norm. That was my baseline, 12 times more expensive than anybody else that was pitching. And the only way you could do that is by doing the hard work up front. You've got to dig those foundations and you've got to build on a rock solid understanding of the human being. These are not organic ATM machines. They're living, breathing, sentient, emotional beings. So. Tell me this, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? You know, the thing, and this is, you know, just, just more about how I run my business is that I'm, I'm like a, I'm a solopreneur. I'm a one man, one man band here. And uh, one of the reasons why I love the startup world is because I love wearing lots of hats and, uh, and I enjoy it and I can, you know, I, I edit the videos, I invoice the customers, <laughs> I, you know, I write the posts and all that kind of stuff and I enjoy it. But, you know, as the business grows, uh, I'm very busy. And a lot of these things are things I think, oh, I should not be spending my time on these things. By the way, if, if you were ever trying to pitch me something and you want, you know, you want the, the silver bullet, just ring me up and say, hey, David, I work with busy entrepreneurs like you who realize that they're spending their time on all sorts of things that they absolutely should not be. Like, that's the deep, dark secret. So I always think about, okay, if I want to grow and scale, it's got to go beyond me. That's why I have the book. That's why I give away all my content for free. But I always think about what is the next, you know, what is the next frontier of scale where I can still live the mission? You know, my goal is to not have my logo on a building one day per se, but like, how do I get the mission out there? and grow and scale in the most, you know, kind of, you know, efficient and modest way possible. Um, that's, that's what's on my mind lately. Let me recommend a book called Systemology by David Jennings, J-E-N-Y-N-S. And Michael Gerber has said that David has completed the work, Michael Gerber's life's work, in the E-Myth uh, Revisited. And he has now completed that by taking those principles and actually systematizing. So a one-man operation can become a turnkey business. The other thing I would urge you to do is look at partnerships because we're a small business. It's me and my wife. And in a week, I do 
I produce more than most people do in a month. And a lot of that is done through partnership. The other book I would strongly recommend you read, two books actually, uh, The Pumpkin Entrepreneur and Mike McC- uh, by Mike McCallowitz and Profit First, because both of those books are about achieving exactly what you've asked for. So I'd strongly recommend those. Okay, David, tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can magically transport yourself back to speak to the idiot David, age 23. (laughs) What one bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have probably ignored but would have been valuable to him? I'll say like the the one piece of advice I give people um, about their careers is, is really thinking about the parts of your job that bring you the most joy. The parts of your job where almost time is standing still. Because in your job, there's all sorts of things that you love to do, like to do, and then don't care to do. And and part of like what I would what I would tell like the young David is like think about the part because figuring out what you want to be when you grow up is a hard thing to do. And I remember my father telling me he would always say he's like, look, the job that you're going to have when you grow up doesn't exist now. Like you can't look into the future. Like who would have thought before DVD players, you needed a DVD repair person, right? And for, you know, certainly with the internet and everything. So that would be my advice. It's like, think about the parts of your job that really light you up where time is standing still. And think about as you move through your career, how can you, at the next job, how can I do more of that? I call it kind of like the love, the love pie. I actually have a, a video about it on my YouTube channel. It's like, how can I increase the chunk of my job that I love to do and try to minimize some of those other things? Because I think oftentimes, especially in sales, and if you're in sales, you're listening to this and you're young, we get very enamored with the, the, the commission check, with what the person beside us is doing. In fact, like competition, we have dashboards and leaderboards, like it's baked into our whole ethos. And then we, we kind of lose sight and we say, and I saw this a lot at Salesforce where reps are saying to themselves, oh, I want to get promoted. I want to be a senior AE and then I want to be an enterprise because that's what you want, right, Marcus? All right, well, we all want the same thing and you get dragged away. So my advice to the young David, because I love what I do now. I'm, I love what I do so much. It's so much of that love chunk of my job is, is in what I do. And if I look back over the course of my career and said, what are the parts of my job that I love doing the most? And I just chunked those all out and made that into a job. That's almost like what I'm doing now. And so my advice is like, pay attention parts of your job that you love. And it doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what company you work for. It could be, look, it could be like, I love presenting. I love working from home. I love traveling. I love being in an office. I love managing people. I love growing startups. And like, and figure out how you can do just a little bit more of that with every so two role. points to build on that. Read a book called StrengthsFinder 2.0. Make sure you buy a brand new copy and at the back, there is a tear-out pin. That allows you to do the StrengthsFinder 2.0 profile, and it spews out your top five strength themes. I think they've increased it now so that you can see all 33. But I did this about 12, 13 years ago. And then I restructured all of my work around my top five strength themes. And the moment I did that, I went from about 75% of the working day doing what I loved to 95 to 100% of every single working day. Monday cannot come around too soon, and Friday comes uh, Friday evening comes around too fast. Um, I, I've even gone so far as to try and get hypnotherapy to slow down my perception of time. Didn't fucking work. Uh, but anyway, now, that's one thing to do. I've also discovered this thing called motivational mapping. 
And it looks at the different areas that we are motivated. And it's incredibly useful as a coaching tool for us to work with our people. Uh, It's very, very powerful, but also to help us develop ourselves. So we have relationship motivators, achievement motivators, and growth motivators. And people who are very strong and high on relationship motivators are often people who tend to look back into their past. Achievement motivators tend to be look very focused on the present. And growth motivators tend to be people who uh, look into the future. And so it looks at things like whether you seek security or belonging or recognition, money, power, knowledge, learning and change, uh, freedom, meaning, and so forth. Now, if you can identify as a manager before you hire or when you take over a team, what individual salespeople's motivations are, then you can make the variable, variable compensation and the soft recognition feed their most motivational drivers. Now, if you play to your strengths, which are really your development areas, because you can put me in a room, train me on Excel for three weeks, I'll still be shit at it, I guarantee, because <laughs> I have no interest or affinity with it. But you put me into a room, we're talking about heuristics, behavioral economics, uh, communications, psychology, selling, management. I'm, it's mine, baby. You know, I'm sucking it in. I can teach it within 24 hours. I'm applying it. I'm seeing how I can connect the dots. Now, you do all of that, and you follow David's advice, which is play to your strengths, play to the stuff that you love. And I have not worked a day since about 2007. Not one day has been work. It's been, I'm being paid to play. And I did my motivational map uh, fairly recently, uh, about uh, a month and a half ago before I left Sandler, and I scored 99%. Now, I don't know many other people. And since I've left, my motivation has skyrocketed from there. Okay, David, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, so like I said, I give away a lot of stuff. Uh, So the best way, you can always hit me up on LinkedIn, David Premer, P-R-I-E-M-E-R. You can hit me up on my website, cerebralselling.com. So you'll find I give away tons of stuff on cerebralselling.com. I have a YouTube channel by the same name as well. And then of course, you can find me on Amazon. The book is called Sell the Way You Buy. So you know we try to be as, as easy to access as possible. But by all means, I give lots of stuff away for free. So feel free to avail yourself of all of, uh, all of the content. And on that note, you can never give away enough. In my experience, content, giving away lots of content has meant that I've had a full pipeline with no effort. As a seller, you need to get really good at content and make it useful and make it original and interesting. And David's stuff is fabulous, which is why he's the guest on the show. (laughs) Thank Uh, you, Marcus. David, thank you so much. Oh, no, my pleasure. Look, it's always great to connect with like-minded people. It seems like we, you know, we're kind of on the same path. I appreciate all the insight and advice you've given me. And I hope uh, those of you listening have, uh, have enjoyed the conversation as well. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this helpful, then please like, comment, share, and please do subscribe. We're now over 50,000 downloads. So uh, the next step is 500,000 in three years. So I'm really looking for your help on that one. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, my email is marcus at laughs-last.com and you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please 
connect us either on LinkedIn or via email. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.